I feel in such existential anxiety, like you are there, but I'm talking to a void there, you know. <laughs> this is a little bit perplexing, but I will survive. I, uh, just a brief improvisation, because, you know, my anxiety, uncertainty, is that often I was invited to a philosophical debate, and then big philosophical questions were, were like, do we need another referendum for Brexit or whatever, and so on. So, what I will try to do to combine the two dimensions is precisely uh, to begin with an abstract topic and show how it relates to philosophical notions. Because I think, and that's my optimism, no, generally I'm a pessimist, optimism for philosophy. Today, with all the public debates even that we have, the role of artificial intelligence, ecology, abortion, and so on. Are we aware that these are all signs that traditional wisdoms no longer can help us? That as ordinary people in our daily situation, we have somehow to address philosophical questions which are by their nature philosophical. So, let me give you two, three examples, one or two jokes in between, and then a political conclusion from this. Uh, people think I oppose LGBT+. I don't. I think properly understood this is something tremendously important. But I want to draw your attention to one feature, to this plus. You know, the official formula is LGBT+ or IQ, big, this dogmatic disputes, theological, you know, how many, let, not, doesn't matter, then you add plus. Now, I'm a great admirer of English philosophy, but nonetheless, I don't quite agree with the tradition of British empiricism. So I will say that the usual reading of this plus is the empiricist reading. The idea is we should break out of the binary of uh, just uh, uh, two big gender roles, masculine, feminine. There are other multiple positions. They should be all equal. So then some people even try to legislate it, like City of New York proposed a list of 32 or 3 sexual positions, boots, trigender, asexual, and so on. But they always worry, my God, what if we missed still some position? What if somebody will come, I'm something else, where is my place in it? So, they simply, being aware that there is no perfect classi full classification, they add a plus as a sign of precaution. Let's be open if somebody else arrives. Now, it may sound as a joke, I forgot her name, but it is in my book. Uh, uh, an Australian feminist, uh, LGBT theorist, proposed a wonderful idea, very Hegelian in my view, that what if we do not read the plus LGBTQ, whatever, plus, S and all others, maybe not yet discovered, what if we take this plus as a position of its own? I can be a plus. And I think that, to make a long story short, if you want 
to hear the detailed argumentation, uh, read my book, <laughs> that uh, subjectivity at its most radical, what we call human subjectivity, is such a plus. When I am offered in ideology, many, that's how ideology works for me, basically, in everyday life. You are offered, or as loyalty servitude put it, interpolated into some identity. You are a woman, a feminist, a theorist, a Muslim, a Christian, whatever, a certain identity. The basic historical question is a question to the master figure who gives you your identity or delineates it. Why am I what you are telling me that I am? Or to quote Juliet from Romeo and Juliet, why am I that name? This self-questioning is basic. And uh, it can be shown nicely, even in psychoanalytic practice, that two things. That first, this questioning is constitutive of subjectivity. Subject is a plus at its most but the, but basic. The moment you identify with a certain position, to put it in clinical terms, you fall into what is called perverse position. A pervert does not question himself. A pervert is a perfect instrument. Pervert knows politically. That's why all totalitarians are perverts, not in the sense of horrors that they are doing, but in the sense of their basic subjective position. A pervert knows better than you what is good for you and like a Stalinist communist. We know better than people themselves what is good for the people and so on. So I'm saying that uh, I don't have time to go into this very interesting domain of how the 68 was here full of anti-feminist biases, you know. They despised, I remember, I was young, I was there, uh, they despised uh, uh, hysteria, oh, this is just feminine, you know, just provoking a master, you don't really want to get rid of the master, but perversion goes to the end. As even Freud once said, very wrongly, I think, perverts actually do what hysterics also only dream about. I want to say that contrary to this, perversion is always the hidden face of uh, uh, domination. Every social power needs perverts to do the work, while uh, this hysterical self-questioning, again, is the basic position of subjectivity, defines subjectivity as such, and, uh, okay, I have to move very fast, so I just, with this ridiculous example, I will just try to illustrate to you how, my second point, how hysteria is basically feminine in its nature. Uh, if you were in love, I'm talking, sorry for my male chauvinist bias in a traditional way, man in love with a woman, it happened to me always, okay, always, I was in love two, three times, really, not more, that the woman asked me this, you know, question that most of men hate, this, tell me, why do you love me? I think it's a very good question, because there is no answer to it. The moment you give reasons, it's not love. Or it's much more delicate. 
Uh, there are reasons to love, but the only way to understand this reason is to already be in love. In love, as in all existential engagements, religion is the same. It's not that you look around, oh, there are different religions. I see here Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, whatever. And let's look around, oh, that one has the better argumentation or the best. I will choose that one. This is not proper faith. Proper faith says only if you already believe you understand the reasons for it. So, again, what I want to say now, I come to my first joke. It's an old one. Maybe some of you know it. But now I discovered a new aspect of it. Things are nonetheless here complicated. Because... uh, As self-questioning, the subject is empty. Empty in the sense of not, not, not rooted in a particular identity, by definition uh, 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 avoiding it. But this doesn't simply mean that subject is without object. The trick precisely with subjective positions, which claim to be universal, above divisions, it's, which is nonetheless the particular bias there. So, now comes the joke. I'm sure that you know it. I hope I will at least surprise you by my reading. It's a wonderful joke told to me by a Jewish friend long ago, where on Sabbath, Saturday, believers meet in a synagogue and first... The great rabbi addresses God there and says, Oh my God, I'm nobody, I'm not worth of your attention, and so on. Then a rich merchant stands up and says, Oh God, I'm also nobody, I'm not worthy of your attention, you should despise me, and so on. Then a poor ordinary Jew stands up and says modestly, Dear God, I'm also nobody. And then the rich merchant kicks the rabbi and says, But who is this guy? Does he think that, like us, he can simply say that he is also nobody, or what? You know, now I will give you a surprising political example of this. We all know how white supremacists pretend to be universal, but really, this is standard topic, how their universalism is false, they secretly privilege certain way of life... But I found the same thing quite often with this typical figure of today's liberal left, this uh, radical anti-nationalist stance of we in the West are guilty of everything, colonial crimes and so on. Whenever there is something wrong in the world, it must be our guilt. It is the effect of colonialism and so on. That's why it's quite comical detail. I'm sorry if you know this story, I will repeat it. I noticed how in the United States, if you are perceived as totally marginal, you are allowed to assert your identity. If Native Americans insist on it, it's wonderful, they resuscitate their dances and so on, uh, wisdoms and so on. Then with black people, it's still okay. With Asians, Japan, China, EE suspicions begin. And the more you approach the West, the more problematic this becomes if you are 
uh, was white Protestant, whatever. If you say, I also want to assert my identity, boom, you are a fascist, whatever. Now, this is often true. I'm not simplifying the choice here. What I'm saying just is that quite often with white people who adopted this position, we did so much crime, we are the dominant, that's why we should not assert our identity, this uh, self-humiliation, renouncing your particular identity, obviously produced what Jacques Lacan calls a plus de jouir, a surplus enjoyment, a kind of libidinal profit, which is precisely the fact that they renounce particular identity, gives them the position of universality from which they are allowed to judge others. Like, in a debate with Native Americans, a white guy, this happened to me years ago in Missoula, Montana, when an Indian person there, Indian, not in the sense of India, in the sense of Native Americans, and incidentally, my Native American friends all prefer the term Indian. They claim Native American is racist, like native. So we are natural and you are cultural Americans or what? As they told me, sorry for this old joke, if our name is Indians, we are at least, our name is at least a monument to white men's stupidity who <laughs> thought they are in India. So the white guy immediately corrected them. No, this is racist, don't do this, and so on and so on. You know, and it's the same a little bit, I think. In today's predominant role in our ideological space of victimhood, many people like to adopt the position of victimhood precisely to enhance, to strengthen their position in social, uh, in social power structure and so on and so on. This happened, I think, it was, in a way, just for her to fail. Did you follow this two, three weeks ago? Elizabeth Warren, the American feminine democratic figure, played this game with, I have some Cherokee blood, and so on, and so on. It was ridiculous. Is she aware <coughs> that she did the same, although in a totally opposite uh, political sense, but nonetheless, formally she was doing the same thing as the Nazis, my God trying to re-establish her credential by her uh, genetic or whatever uh, DNA analysis and so on and so on. And the right answer to her came not from Donald Trump, who is disgusting, from the Cherokee, some tribal elders group, who denounced her brutally as manipulator and so on and so on. Now, my next point. What kind of this may hurt some of you. What kind of, uh, what kind of divinity would you associate with this notion of subject as questioning and so on and so on? Again, I cannot go, no time for details now, but I would have said, and here comes another joke, a divinity which is, and I think this is the deepest insight of some radical trends in Christianity, a God who is not perfect. A God who is literally, because he is too good, a little bit retarded, imperfect. I will not go into it now. I will tell you another 
joke. And so that you will not think that I am a Zionist. My God, I'm a BDS supporter. I'm just waiting when they will prohibit me to enter Israel. But <laughs> nonetheless, they have excellent <coughs> theological jokes. One is this one. <coughs> uh, I'll tell you. <coughs> uh, it's very brutal joke, but I love them because true jokes are brutal. Do you know that there is a whole subculture of Holocaust jokes in Judaism? Not, they are not perverts who make fun of themselves. It's a subtle admission that when things are really horrible, to play this tragic game with dignity is obscene. You can only do a joke. So the joke goes like this. To understand this joke, you have to know, <coughs> sorry, you have to know that, uh, you have to know that, uh, one of the theological reactions to Holocaust is God died in Auschwitz. Too horrible is what happened there. God couldn't have been there. He couldn't have allowed it. So God was absent. God died in Auschwitz. Okay, the joke goes like this. A couple of victims who died in Auschwitz, Jews, are now in paradise, of course, and they are walking around there. They sit on a bench on a nice field, meadow in paradise, and tell, amuse each other with jokes. Jokes about their death in Auschwitz. Like, one old Jew said to the other, do you remember, Jacob, how was it when they dragged you toward the gas chamber? You slipped already before and broke your head so that you died before even you were touched by gas, and they all laughed. Oh, that was funny. Then God himself takes a break from his work and drops by and looks at them and says, listen, my friends, I don't understand this joke of you. And now comes the absolutely sublime humor. <coughs> One of the Jews steps towards him, uh, puts his hand over God's shoulder and, uh, and like patronizingly tells him, don't worry, you were not there, so of course you cannot understand it, and so on. You know what's so subversive here? That what God cannot understand is not the horror of it. It's the joke that we make out of it. I don't have time, maybe later, to go into it. Just to allow me to finish, because I know that I have a very specific notion of temporality. No? And, uh, <laughs> Very briefly, I think that, although I'm very critical towards many aspects of Marxism, one thing we still should pursue today, critique of ideology. Not in the traditional Marxist sense, but in a new mode. Just to give you one of my slogans, you know Marxist old definition of religion as the opium of the people. I think today we should drop it. And propose another version. There are today, maybe some of you heard this joke of mine, the answer is obvious, today there are two new opiums of the people. And you can guess what they are. Opium and the people. <laughs> First, are you aware, I read some American analysis, uh, to what extent, at least in degenerate circles like ours, academia, that literally 70 to 80 percent of people to retain the normal functioning of their mind already rely on different forms of drugs. From ordinary daily drugs to more serious uh, 
psychodrugs up to opium itself and so on and so on. It is as if without this resort to chemistry and biochemistry, we can <coughs> we are so destabilized we cannot function normally. The other opium of the people is the people itself. This is what precisely we call populism today. And for this reason I cannot go I'm at Concluding now, of course, this is why I find problematic the idea of so-called leftist, left populism, that we should answer the right by our own populism. You know why not? Because populism always has some features. It defines populism. You simplify the situation by, by constructing a clear figure of the enemy. And you connect with so-called anxieties, scares of ordinary people. I think that this no longer, I'm a pessimist here, works today. Let's take the United States. Okay, you will say the enemy is Trump. No, it is immediately. But the enemy, the true enemy, cannot be personalized. The true enemy is the failure of the liberal consensus in the last decades in the United States. Trump didn't fall from the moon onto the earth. He emerged as a result of certain failures of this predominant form of uh, consensus, because never forget this. Every functioning democracy is based on a consensus. You can skip all the debates, antagonisms, but they always had, have to take place against the background of a certain basic agreement. These are and then we can find about is this the, be the best way to help our society and so on and so on. That's why it's dangerous what is happening now, not only but also in the United States. It's literally this consensus is disintegrating. It's a kind of ideological uh, civil war. So uh, uh, I, uh, the second thing I, that I reason that I doubt populism is, and this will be the tragic point with which, after a series of bad jokes, I will uh, conclude. You know, traditional Marxism still relied on the idea that the unique chance of a revolutionary change is to connect what Marx thought it was the highest theoretical insight, historical materialism, the chance of revolution, deep understanding of history, with the concerns of and troubles of daily life of concrete people. That, like, what people experience as their deadlock resonates with the deepest insight, proletarian revolution and so on and so on. I don't think we are at such a situation today. And I'm not saying people, ordinary people, don't know it, but we the theorists do know it. No, we know even less. But what I'm saying is this. For example, my good friend, I admire him, we are very good friends, Yanis uh, Varoufakis. His idea is we need real democracy in European Union. Not this alienated Brussels bureaucracy, but people should... No, we should listen to... Okay, then I asked him, and I never got, so I claim, I'm sorry, a good answer. I asked him, but okay, do you know that if we were to ask ordinary people today in Europe, what do you think about 
immigrant threat, refugees and so on. About 60 to 70 percent would say, fuck them, I mean, throw them out. <laughs> and it, so paradoxically, are you aware of this tragic situation that in spite of all blaming Brussels bureaucracy, they were more open towards refugees than the authentic popular opinion and so on and so on. Okay, Varoufakis' answer to me was, because people are manipulated. We need just two weeks of open debate. I told him, are you crazy? That's the ultimate utopia. That somehow we will clear the table, address the people with truth. No, that's why we need critique of ideology today. Ideology is not something, some outside external force that washes the brains of the people Ideology is our daily experience. We are, I, I will not repeat it because most of you know it, but in one of my old classic analyses, I even took the structure, you all know it, I know, I will be short and conclude. I took the typical structure of British, American, uh, French and German toilets to make this point. You remember it, how uh, British or American toilets are full of water and shit after you produce it is floating there. German toilets have a hole but in front so that your shit falls back and stays there. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I saw them. Then it's a ritual of inspecting, smelling your shit, you know. Are that. And French is the hole is in the back. So... It disappears immediately. Shit. But isn't this what was called already in late 18th century the European Trinity? British, you are pragmatic, economy, let's do it, compromise, shit floats in water. Uh, French are revolutionary, you know, liquidate quickly the shit out. German are poets and metaphysicians, you know, like observe shit, analyze it. And you know what? You think it's a bad joke. But I talked with architects, and they confirmed this to me. They say, you cannot explain it with some uh, uh, rational, pragmatic reasons. The only reason I ended up with these bad jokes, repeating myself, is to let you know how, although people claim, oh, the ideological era is behind us, no, we are perhaps more in ideology than ever. That's why our first task of public intellectuals, intellectuals in general, is not to propose solution. Don't fall into this trap. This is what authorities want. We have a problem. People are demonstrating how... No. Our first task is to raise the right questions. The problem today is not answers, but are we... How... When we see a problem, the way we formulate a problem is, as a rule, already part of the mystification. Just think about all the ideologies projected into ecology. Beginning with this idea, Mother Earth and we humans uh, hurt, distorted Mother Earth and so on and so on. Or even racism. The idea that the main problem with racism is lack of tolerance. No, this is typical cultural left, which sees the problem as we should more understand each other and so on and so on. I totally oppose to this. To provoke you to really finish, my 
idea of an open, democratic, whatever you call it, society is not there is an Iranian friend, an African friend, a Jewish friend, a Latino-American friend, and we understand each other. No, you resign yourself. How can I understand them when I don't even understand myself? The, the true task is tolerance precisely towards what you have to accept that it remains an otherness. We need what my right-wing friend, who is not an idiot German, Peter Sloterdijk, says, a new culture of discretion. And I think this is the only way to retain sanity in our crazy global world. Now comes the biggest surprise. I finished, really. Thank you very much. No, stop, stop. You applaud too long. That's my standard <laughs> traditional Stalinist joke. Wait a minute till we old hardliners left take power, then you will have to applaud a lot. So spare your energy for people's democracy then. <laughs> Professor Shizek, thank you so much for Thank your, you, I'm your glad comments. to be here. But let me tell you something. No, no, I always preferred... <laughs> Cambridge to Oxford. Oh, well, you can come no, no. back there. No, I will tell you why. Oxford is always associated by me to that more old-time conservative Latin-speaking, and I never forgot, as a lover of Cromwell, Charles I. Yeah. Oxford was his bastion, no? To attack Parliament and so on, no? So, uh, and also, I think, in... Social theory, humanities, it's losing now. I don't know how it is with you, but at least in new sciences, no? From quantum physics to bioengineering, aren't you now more? And, and social sciences as well. So Sorry? We're beating ah, them across the park. Okay, okay, then I concede defeat, but again, I all, also, because Cambridge is, even romantically, Oxford is just a big city with a university part. Cambridge is more like all of it, university, you know. Well, feel I free just to like it back. here. Sorry. Okay, so how it's going to work for the rest of the talk is I'm going to ask Professor Zizek some questions, and then for the last 15 just to 20 please, minutes... If you want to survive this evening, don't ever call me again Professor Zizek. I was waiting for you to tell me. What did I do? Did I rape your mother in public to, to humiliate me so Careful, much? my mom's watching. Please, call... No, because Slava. when you call me Professor Zizek... I, where is the professor here? It cannot be me. <laughs> right. Thanks. Point, as you Thanks. wish. Okay. So, um, Jordan Peterson yes. was at the union last I week. I know, our great spiritual yeah. man. Yeah. And he said that um, he hoped that the Democrats got badly beaten in the midterms so it would give them a kick up the arse effectively. And uh, you said in a recent interview with Owen Jones that you think that Clinton is the problem, not Trump. So I was wondering whether you agree with Professor Peterson and whether you think ah, that the Democrats... Him got you the kick can call Professor, yeah. that's okay. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and whether you think that the Democrats got the kick up the arse they needed this week in the elections. Uh, I am... Okay, let's not lose too much time with this. I just wanted to say that I'm quite convinced with some analysis which show that the reasons of this relative success only in the Senate of Republicans is 
the obvious, incredible injustice of American electoral system for the Senate. You know the principle, each state gets two senators. So you have a small state, small by the number of population, like I don't know, Montana and so on, which gets the same number of senators as California, although California has around 60 times more population. And it's strict. Do you know that the Democrats nonetheless got some 15, 20 millions more of the votes? You know. But you know where do I more fundamentally disagree with Peterson? On the one hand, it's not that I am for, in any sense, for Trump. He is a horror. But maybe this is my wildly Leninist, speculative, brutal mind. I am always obsessed by this idea. I don't blame them. They can be well-meaning and so on. That again, as you said and I said, the problem is the disintegration of this old centrist liberal democratic consensus. That, and this is what is really in crisis. And I see Trump as somebody who further undermines this consensus and thus create a need and maybe even a chance for a new consensus. I claim no Bernie Sanders and so on and so on, no democratic socialist without Trump. Now, I know this is an extremely dangerous game because some idiots who uh, criticized me at this point use this idea, but this is the same as to say some crazy communist did say in 33, it's better to have Hitler in power now, the fronts are clear. No, I'm not saying this. It's a specific statement about the United States. For example, I am not saying that you should get Boris Johnson, <laughs> Prime Minister, or France, Marine Le Pen. European states are organized in a much more uh, centralized, different way. So, uh, back to uh, Jordan Peterson. First, I, I think that with all his pseudo-scientific reference, you know, he cannot talk about women and marriage without mentioning lobsters, apes, or whatever, all of them, that uh, if you go to the end in this direction, mirroring uh, relations of domination among animals, uh, projecting them onto humans, then we humans are doomed, my God, because Humanity as such is unnatural. What is the idea of equality, freedom, and so on and so on? This is human madness. And not only this, I cannot go into this now, but my first point is, and I will quote here somebody who is also my enemy, but a little bit more honest, uh, Steven Pinker, so-called rational optimist. I saw on YouTube a debate between two of them where Jordan Peterson went strongly in this direction. Today there is so much violence and so on. And then uh, Steven Pinker said, sorry, your facts are totally wrong. Like, no, if you look at it globally with all the horror, you have here those knife crimes and so on. The last decades are still much better than any time in history, and so on, and so on. So first, I doubt many of his facts. As to his theories, first, uh, I was not in the sense that he uses it, but I think at the beginning, not that I liked him, I think he became famous 
for his brutal reaction to some transgender people's idea, he, she, the, it, whatever. I don't agree with him, but I think he did draw attention to some problems there. There I had not a sympathy, but half understanding. Then catastrophe emerged when he fell into this stupid trap and started to use the term, which is today the main term of contemporary right, cultural Marxism. And it would be so interesting, I don't want to talk too much, to follow, to deploy in front of you the entire background of this nation. It's incredible. There is a whole conspiracy theory narrative. It goes like this. After communist revolutions, direct political, uh, 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 failed in early 20s, communist, Comintern and Lenin, whoever was there, Stalin, decided that we failed because we underestimated the strength of the Christian moral convictions of Western people. So we should first undermine them morally. And this is why it's a beautiful theory, I like it. Uh, through the detour of some Argentinian millionaire, they financed a, a, a Frankfurt School, Western Marxism, which then culminates in today's, uh, in today's what they call cultural Marxism. Okay, to cut a long story short, I talk too much, I know I'm totally opposed to this narrative. I think that today's political correctness and so on and so on, its failure is not that it's too fanatically Marxist, it's precisely that it's not Marxist. That is to say, basic question of social power, economy and so on, it obfuscates these powers, these questions, sorry, as cultural problems, and so on and so on. Then, there is the third moment. I'm not giving you now full critique. I cannot have just, uh, just mapping the topic. Where I find him, Peterson, even more problematic, his attitude, he wants to be a wise guy, wisdom, giving advice to people, Jung, Jungian approach, and so on and so on. Here I react like Goebbels. I pull out my gun. Like, uh, I have such a distrust towards any form of wisdom. Wisdom is for me, by definition, stupidity. You know what is wisdom? Wisdom is totally opportunistic. I'll give you a simple example. In my country, let's say you do something risky and you succeed. Then I can immediately comment on your success by five, ten proverbs, you know, like we have a, it rhymes nicely in Slovene, only those who risk profit or whatever, this type of uh, justifying risking. Then let's say you fail. We have again a series of wonderful vulgar proverbs, like my most popular one, you cannot urinate against the wind, you know, and so on. <laughs> this is, wisdom is so deeply, and I think the greatest of our traditions, at least European, Plato, Plato, ancient Greek philosophy, or Christianity, they are absolutely anti-wisdom. Anti Jesus Christ is a madman. I mean, in this sense of socially disruptive and so on. You know, if nothing else, the traditional form of wisdom always thinks in circular terms. 
what arises will fall down. Everything returns to dust. And the notion of injustice is always the notion of somebody who should stick to his or their particular role, gets caught in a hubris too much, but balance has to be dis- uh, restored. This is the very opposite of Christianity and of Plato. The basic idea of Plato is Plato's idealism. In, in this sense, I am a materialist idealist, whatever this means, uh, is that you are, go on in your daily life, stupid daily life, you search for pleasures, then you have a mega experience, religious, philosophical, even erotic love, and your whole life is destabilized. Are we aware how non-organic, traumatic, brutal thing a true passionate love is? Again, a vulgar example that I like to use. Let's say you are not in love. You live your promiscuous life, you drink with friends, one night stand here, there, and so on. Then you fall in love. All this stability is destroyed. Everything is focused onto something. That's what's so great. You find this in Christianity. You find this also in other religions. I don't want to go into it. You find this in Plato's idealism. You know, Plato's basic reaction was, it, uh, the way Plato describes Socrates when he is thinking, it's really like a hysteric reaction of this. Ah, he just stood there, uh, immobilized, and so on and so on. So I am for abstraction, for violent difference, for I am absolutely against any holistic approach. Okay. I didn't answer. That was a very comprehensive, yeah, yeah, yeah. very comprehensive way of yeah. not answering my question. So thank you. Um, moving on, um, you're, doubt, you're no doubt aware that on university campuses, particularly in the UK and also increasingly in America, we live no, in. No, in the, America, I'm going down now. No, you know why? It's still good, but... No, 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 sorry. I interrupted you not to go into narcissistic topics, yeah. but precisely from the predominant uh, liberal leftist politically correct view, I made a whole series of fatal mistakes. First, it was uh, with, uh, it was with, uh, with the question of immigrants, refugees. Of course, I don't oppose them. I just emphasized that You know, you don't, like, different ways of life are a fact. A fact in the sense that what we Lacanians call mode of social jouissance. You organize your pleasures in how sexes are combined, in how authorities function, and so on and so on. And that's why I think I'm not on anybody's side. I'm just saying, I don't believe that things are as simple as let's open ourselves and we will all be brothers and so on and so on. We in Slovenia will be very short, if you believe me, if you are stupid enough to believe me. We we in Slovenia, we had a problem already 20 years ago that I still traumatically remember. Uh, Gypsy, Roma is now the term, here I agree with it. A Roma girl, 13 years old, escaped from home took refugee police that her father wanted to marry her to his whatever relative. And then there was a big debate, of course, all feminists were on the side of the girl, me too, was on her side. But then 
Some elders from Roma community said something very simple. They say, are you aware that arranged marriages are the very core of our way of life? Our way of life is not what you think, those stupid dances, music, whatever, and food. That's superficial. Our way of life is based on arranged marriages. You take this from us, in 20 years we no longer exist. And now I'm not even taking anybody's side. I'm just saying that don't underestimate the strength of being rooted in a certain uh, way of life. It's much stronger thing. So the result is not refugees out. On the contrary, it's that we must approach the problem in a much more careful way. This was one of my problems. Second problem was uh, <laughs> LGBT plus Me Too political correctness, where I also, while basically absolutely supporting them, like I said about Me Too, and I believe it, this is incredibly important, because a certain model, basic matrix of relations between sexes, which basically lasts from even before states emerge, already in developed tribal societies, is now undermined. But I think one should be careful, there are traps there. Then there was, of course, all the problem, whom to blame more, Trump, Democrats, and so on and so on. So my status there is, my stocks are downward moving. Sorry to interrupt you here. No um, so... Um, in university campuses, we have an age of identity politics, and there's a concern among some on the left that identity politics undermines the development of a more universal and common humanity-centred solidarity that is required as necessary yeah. to bring about yeah. a radically different economic epoch to that of contemporary capitalism. So I was wondering whether you had any thoughts yes, on this. Yes, but again, this is very sad. That's why people claim I'm popular. No, I'm not, and I know well why I'm not. Books and authors who are truly popular always have at the end a simple, effective formula, like Chantal Mouffe now, left populism, you know, before uh, 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 Negri and Hart, multitudes and so on and so on. I'm skeptical. I know how much this hurts me, but I don't want to propose this formula. So while in principle I agree with this, I'm very much critical towards those Marxists who think we can simply go on with praising proletariat. Who is today the possible agent of change? If there will be a change, I'm not sure. I think it's very dispersed. We have dissatisfaction in educated circles, like if you are a computer specialist or whatever, and if you are not very lucky, I don't know why it is here. In my country, Slovenia, 60% of people under 30 already can get only precarious jobs and so on. You have unemployed. You have so many other groups which are marginalized. You have then, of course, even whole countries which are out, out of our, what I call, cupola, out of privileged universe. But as such, they are fully integrated into global capital. Take Congo which is one of the nightmares of today's world. Congo is totally integrated. So many crucial minerals come from Congo, but it's the state which is a non-operative state and mostly it's local warlords dealing directly with Western 
corporations with, of course, full support or at least the international community is turning a blind eye and so on and so on. So I think that while, of course, miracles will happen, I don't mean religious miracles, I mean like who would have even, for example, that would be my ambiguity, Syriza was a miracle. It was the first time that a relatively radical left, in a very democratic, clear way, came to power. But what happens afterwards is so significant for me. It's, an, it's like a symptom of the deadlock of today's left. They were elected, as we all know, on the platform to oppose austerity. And then, you remember that referendum, literally two, three days after winning the anti-austerity referendum, they adopted the stance of becoming a perfect executors of the most brutal austerity. And I don't think we can simply blame them, like my radical leftist friend, some of them, traitors, traitors. No, the situation is much more tragic. We, we really lack a vision of what to do, to be very blunt. It's not enough to criticize uh, liberal, left-leaning, liberal democracy. It, one has to also say, okay, okay, we need more radical left, but what will this left really do? I have this basic problem. Is it simply, I hate this formula that we need a democracy which more and more relies on active citizens and so on and so on. I think this is a bullshit, empty formula. I love bureaucracy. My idea of happiness is you live in a complex state and you don't have to worry, you know, this is for me nightmare, what some of my leftist friends describe as paradise. You live in a non-alienated local community and all the common things are debated together, uh, how to organize kindergartens, water supply, education. I, would you really like to live in a society like that? I would like to live in a nicely, authentically alienated society. <laughs> By alienation, I mean I do my work, of course, from time to time one has to control, the, but I can rely on an invisible state bureaucracy that thinks basically function. Now people started to shout, Stalinist, Stalinist. <laughs> no, the, the problem of Stalinism was precisely that uh, it never was ready able to establish a well-functioning bureaucracy. That's why it has to have purges and emergency states all the time. I'm a believer, my motto to the horror of my leftist friends is uh, authentically alienated bureaucracy and uh, uh, like, uh, uh, not we are all one, we are all one in abstract, but concretely I want proper distances. Like, let me tell you something brutal, and I mean this as an existential attitude. No, I'm, I'm, I'm misanthropic. I wouldn't like to be friends with many of you. <laughs> friendship is something, and if you are honest, you, friendship is something you really, I even don't want, if somebody comes to me, oh, you should understand me. No, I'm not interested in you, and so on. <laughs> And don't get caught into this moralistic liberal pressure. We should understand each other. You know, which is, oh, sorry, just to finish. Uh, we know, which is along these lines, one of the most 
stupid proverbs, wisdoms that I know. It was popular by some uh, of this uh, new community, communitarian ecologists. An enemy is somebody to whom we were not ready to listen. Like, the idea is clear. Somebody appears to us as an enemy, but the moment you really are ready to hear his side, maybe, but in a very limited way, I claim. Would you say that Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to listen to him or what? No, sorry. Okay, I'm telling telling you now something very uh, uh, well known, but nonetheless... The greatness of Churchill was that he was reading, he was listening to Hitler already in the early 30s and knew it. So, uh, you know, we have to accept that there are authentic enemies. Where the point, you know why? I will tell you now why. Because, and with this I conclude, (laughs) ethical, no, no, sorry, an ethical point, important. You know, I don't... Let's look at a guy who does horrible things. Then a humanist comes and says, but we should try to understand him. Why is he or she or they doing this? I'm saying yes and no, because to understand him means simply to listen to the myth that he, this criminal, is telling to himself to justify what he is doing. Like in Brazil, I read now a wonderful book about how the secret police, which 30, 40 years ago there was, they were serially torturing political prisoners and so on. You know what they did? They invented their own New Age religion, a combination of pseudo-Buddhism and some Western mystical trends. The message was this fake Buddhist message. Reality is not substantial. Reality outside is just a flow of phenomena. Uh, The only thing that really matters is your inner experience and so on and so on. This even almost beautiful vision was what enabled them to torture but with a distance, without getting caught in it. So I, I think that all, this is why I read a wonderful book recently, forgot the author, the title is The Nazi Ethics. And it asks precisely this question. We all know the horrors the Nazi did, but what stories were they telling to themselves to justify in their eyes what they are doing? So uh, in this sense, I am much more of a skeptic. Okay. Um, so for the last probably 10, 15 minutes, we're going to open the floor to questions from the membership. That was my hope, that I talk too much, and then it's my most beloved hypocritical question, uh, right, that I can say, so sorry, guys, I wanted to go on, but we have no time, and so <laughs> on. Yeah, well, I'm going to do the, you the red do button this, yeah. the sign. Yeah? How much do I have to bribe yeah, you to, yeah. to, to do Okay, this, yeah. so um, if anybody has a question, please put your hand please. up. Wait for a mic to come to you. Uh, before you ask your question. Are we in animistic society? Do mics walk around here? Yeah. Or carried by humans? Uh, just <laughs> here in the second row. <clears throat> Sorry. Hi. Hi. Um, so just touching off your ideas in violence, like about the kind of like anti... You're not talking about general violence or my book? The book violence. The book, yeah. yeah. Um, kind of like about the anti-leftist appropriation of political correctness and stuff. I was wondering if like, you had any thoughts on 
if there's a disparity between conventional anti-Semitism and kind of political anti-Semitism as it's presented as manifest in the Labour Party? First, I don't know enough. I have some doubts there, I must say, about Labour Party. But I will tell you something else. I wonder if you will agree. <laughs> no, no, no. It's about anti-Semitism today. <laughs> what really worries me today, if you ask me, is a term... And I have <clears throat> so many examples of it. And the saddest thing is that the Israeli government is playing this game. What I shamelessly call, don't start to shout, I will try to justify it, uh, 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 Zionist anti-Semitism. There is a long line in European anti-Semitic right, which supports fully Israel because Jews should move there not be here. I quote him in my book, you know, one of those guys was Reinhard Heydrich. He wrote before it began in 36-7, Jews are a great people, we wish them all the best luck, we want to collaborate with them, but there, 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 they should move there. And, uh, and uh, it goes on and on. You remember that crazy guy, Norwegian, Breivik, who killed many social democratic youth there? His, it's interesting to read, I didn't there in Norwegian, but uh, uh, my Norwegian friend sent me some excerpts. His idea towards Jews, his notion of Jews is split in the same way. He said, in the Middle East, we should fully support Israel. They are a fortress defending the West against Arab primitivism and so on. But here, they are intruders, they should go out and so on. And uh, now, the saddest thing is that <clears throat> precisely those European politicians, political orientations, many of alt-right, have now the same split. For example, Orban in Hungary, in his uh, home politics, he all the time, he denies it, but he softly flirts with anti-Semitism, while he's all for Israel out there. It's the same with Kaczynski, uh, peace and whatever, a law and justice party in Poland. Good relations with Israel, more or less open flirting with anti-Semitism at home. That's why, that's why my dream is to turn it around. I hate I'm also all the time accused of Islamophobia, of course. So, I, but I hate those... I will finish with a very naive point. I hope you will agree. When people say on both sides, like on the one hand, some Jews say, listen, we suffered Holocaust, you should pardon us a little bit of what we are doing there. Or on the other hand, many Arabs saying... Uh, you know, what they are doing to Palestinians now is the same as Nazis were doing to them, so we have the right to some terror and so on. I think that the only ethical stance imaginable is you should... The only just sympathy for Palestinians should not be, ah, let's screw the Jews, but on the opposite. For the same reason that one must be unconditionally against anti-Semitism, and there is no compromise here. I never have read it to accept the term 
progressive antisemitism. This was my long problem years ago when I was still half friend with him, with Ernesto Laclau. He flirted with this idea that why not in some progressive movements you can have antisemitism incorporated. My idea is that because of structural reasons, how antisemitism is structured, antisemitism is always by definition a sign that something is wrong, wrong, flawed with your political vision. So you know who was that to say for the same reason that I admit the mega horror of Holocaust and European antisemitism, for the same reason I show some sympathy to Palestinians. And this is what all my Jewish friends, this is their position of my Jewish friends. This is so important not to make any compromises here. I mean, you know who, I forgot his name, I think it's Marek Edelman. In one of my earlier books, I finished with him. He's one of my absolute heroes of 20th century. He was a Bundist, a Polish Jew. He fought together with communists in pre-World War II Poland. Then he was uh, one of the few survivors and organized the Warsaw Ghetto, the famous resistance when the Nazis destroyed the ghetto. Then he was the Warsaw Uprising, one of the organizers. It's incredible person. Then he remained in Poland and uh, was a dissident, even arrested a couple of times. Then he was one of the founding fathers. It's an incredible person. He was always there. Founding fathers of solidarity and even wrote a letter to my Palestinian brothers, telling them precisely as a victim of anti European anti-Semitism, I sympathize you, but unconditionally don't fall into anti-Semitism, terror and so on, but nonetheless deep, deep sympathy. And uh, you see, these heroes are authentic, ethical heroes for me. Don't fall into that blackmail, you know. Oh, we suffered so much so that now, fuck it, we can cheat a little bit and so on. No, ethics must be blind, cruel and brutal. Okay, any more questions? Uh, the person, yeah, you're waving at me and I've seen you. <laughs> How did you choose? Huh? This is always when I run a debate, the big enigma for me. How did you make a choice now? Why don't we talk Personal about sympathy or what? Let's talk about that later. When we're okay, so I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please. Uh, so, um, I'm going to use some Marxist terms, sorry. Um, but uh, given that you said that today is the, possibly the most ideologically hmm? intense era hmm? in history... Do you think we maybe have to edit the classic Marxian base and superstructure where ideologically is, ideolog ideology is traditionally thought of as superstructure, maybe move it to the base? Maybe using a practice, practical example from your speech, you talked about um, the plus de jouir, uh, basically of the renunciation of Western ide identity by the liberal left to create this uh, surplus enjoyment. Um, I recently read the, the, the Capitalist Unconscious by um, your uh, compatriot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, very big, good book. He talks about um, the sort of labor theory of the unconscious, where the plus de jouir can be um, basically applied to the capitalist mode of production and surplus value as well. So it's sort of taking this, um, uh, this 
purely theoretical element and adding it to the example you gave, do you think maybe we can put ideology into the Marxian base? And if so, is there more we can put into the Marxian base to reformulate a new politics of liberation? Uh, I will give you... I talk too much, I admit. I mean, I could have... uh, go on for hours, literally, especially about that nice point, the labor theory of the unconscious and so on, because it's crucial to understand properly Freud. Because what this means is that the Freudian unconscious is not some deep secret. It's produced in the very mystification elaboration but of, uh, uh, of your uh, desires, but... My basic point would have been this one. I have nonetheless one problem with this clear-cut distinction superstructure base, which is clearly present already in Marx. I ask you rhetorically, but you can nonetheless answer, uh, a simple question. What Marx calls commodity fetishism, is it ideology or not? It's a very w- strange ideology which happens which takes place, which is located into the very core of economic process. I'm not decided should we call it ideology or not, but in some sense, fetishism and so on, it is ideology. But what is so great in Marx, and only today we can see how right Marx was, is that, now this is an important theoretical point, for Marx, Fetishism of, of commodity does not mean in real life we are doing one thing, but we are perceiving it as a fetish, abstract, spiritual entity. Marx, if you read it closely, is saying, and this is Marx at his best, almost the exact opposite. You remember uh, the very... Uh, first sentence of this sub-chapter in Capital, addendum to the first edition, whatever, on commodity fetishism, where Marx says a commodity appears in a first sight, sorry, I don't quote literally, as an ordinary daily object. But an analysis brings out all the theological niceties, tricks in it. So, Marx's point is that uh, commodity fetishism is not in our Thoughts, like, I do something, but then I wrongly perceive it. It's in our activity itself. That's the beauty. An illusion, which you can even consciously know that it's an illusion. You don't believe in this, but you practice it on the market. Now, if you will pardon me, I will tell an old joke, very short one, just one line, which I think I already even used it here the last time I was here in Cambridge. It just perfectly serves my purpose. I'm so embarrassed. I used it ten times in my book. You know that boring Niels Bohr example of a horseshoe? You know, Niels Bohr, quantum guy, uh, had at the entrance of his country house a horseshoe. I don't know how it is with you in continental Europe, a horseshoe above the entrance is a superstitious, superstitious item which allegedly prevents evil spirits to enter the house. So a scientist friend visits him and said, but are you crazy? This is superstition. Why do you have it there? Do you believe in it? Niels Bohr, no wonder he was allegedly reading Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard gives the perfect answer. He says, I'm a scientist. Of course, I don't believe in it. But I have it there. Because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. (laughs) That's ideology. 
We know it's false. You don't have to believe it, but it works. So again, uh, uh, and this is incidentally also a problem which bothers Fred Jameson with today's capitalism, speculative capital and all, all that. It's, you cannot even imagine its functioning without ideologies operative in it. Not so much in how speculative capitalists reflect on it. They are usually cynical, brutal realists and so on. But to understand how they are acting, what they are doing. And that's why it's very interesting. Although the structure of commodity fetishism is very uh, clearly ideological, Marx never calls it directly uh, ideology. So here things get complicated, but I'm not here an idealist smuggling ideas into material base. I think I'm thereby promoting precisely a materialist notion of ideology, that even ideology in its, has its own base and superstructure. Ideology is not primarily some system of what you are doing and so on. It's like, I mentioned them here, I think, the toilet structures or this. Ideology is embedded in our daily practices. That's what we still can learn from Marx today, I claim. Okay. Um, one final question before I ask my mum where she met you. Um, somebody in the balcony, possibly? Yep, there's a, I can just see a hand right at the back if we can get a microphone. To but them. can we get, uh, sorry to be hypocritical, but I'm really honest here. You will, you, not me, you will be reproached when, if no woman will ask a question. And I don't mean this in a patronizing way. The worst thing for male, pat, male patriarchal types is to get one woman and then to say, oh, you see, we are honest. But nonetheless, it hurts me because often... Women, I must say this as a privately very, not anti-feminist, like, you know, I'm a frustrated man who envies successful women who write better books than you. And they, they usually ask better questions. Sorry. I just... Um, yeah, I just wanted to, I think, I was really interested when you were talking about how um, liberal consensus has been sort of disrupt, disrupted a little bit and democracy is kind of at risk because of that. And um, I think part of the reason why that's happening is because of uh, the technology where these debates are playing out online at the moment and the algorithms behind them mm. that kind of tend to lead us into only finding articles that we already agree with. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the way that technology has affected the sort of disruption mm. of a consensus. Uh, if I got, sorry, maybe I wasn't able to follow all of it in detail. I mean, technical problem, but... I nonetheless, maybe I misunderstood you, but I wouldn't put it direct. I still, in a very naive way, believe that technologies are not in themselves ideologically oriented. Of course, in some sense they are, but they are always a battlefield. Like, what is going on now is the big battlefield of who will control the digital space. And this is especially important battle, because if we can learn something from what goes on now, uh, 
That's why I still support with all the crazy things he did, Julian Assange. Because people say, why doesn't he criticize Putin more? My answer is that, uh, first, I agree, he said some stupid things about Russia and so on. But, you know, uh, the, the big breakthrough of WikiLeaks was, for me, not so much Russia, China. My God, everybody knows they are controlled societies and so on. Ideology at its most dangerous today is, and that's the magic of successful control through internet and other digital media, that you are most controlled and softly regulated precisely when you perceive yourself as at the highest level of your freedom. What can be most free than just surfing the web, this, that, and so on? That's ideology at its most dangerous. To put it in someone, somewhat pathetic terms, your unfreedom experienced as falsely experienced as a new form of freedom. This is how it all works from late 60s onwards. For example, today you cannot even get a permanent job, all the time anxiety, precarious work. Then ideologies of new modernity come and tell you, but don't you see that the fact that you don't have a permanent job is a new opportunity, you are not alienated in a fixed position, you can reinvent yourself every year again and again. That's ideology at its most efficient. Not the old authoritarian ideology, subordinate, but to make you see new forms of unfreedom as the very form, new, new figures of unfreedom as the very form of freedom. In this sense, I think the battles today are, and that are precisely for these invisible forms of control. And the last text I wrote, you can read it, it's published in that very marginal American, they're the only ones who want to publish me, uh, digital journal, Los, a philosophical salon at Los Angeles Review of Books. I read a wonderful book by Italian author who was a fascist, then became a communist. Uh, uh, okay, you will say the usual. <laughs> uh, of uh, Curzio Malaparte, of the revolutionary coup d'etat technique, immediately. No, and he says, uh, describes very convincingly how Trotsky, who we know now, was the true master of the October Revolution, did it. Uh, Stalin and the majority of the Politburo of the Bolsheviks, even Lenin was oscillating here, still thought about revolution in the traditional way. You gather 100,000 of people, they storm the palace, the seat of government, army headquarters. Uh, Trotsky got the point that a modern state has a couple of knots or uh, uh, key points of power which render possible its functioning. And Trotsky said, you do your revolution next day. Give me one night before for me to take over electricity, water supply, railway, post offices, and so on. And that was the surprise. Everybody knew 
newspapers were reporting, oh, Bolsheviks are preparing a coup d'etat. And the irony is that Kerensky knew it, he was mobilizing soldiers. And then you know Trotsky was here at least, later he made mistakes, he was a genius. He said, I needed less than 1,000 people, small groups, 20, 30 people, dedicated soldiers, Bolsheviks, and specialists. And you know what he was doing? For example, Ministry, I think, of Electricity. It was a building, and it was so unprotected, nobody expected it that. His 20, 30 Bolsheviks were simply for days running up, down the stairs there, practicing it, and people were just laughing. What are these idiots doing it? And then he did it in the night before. He just took over this key point, points, the state was immobilized. Maybe we should do the same today. Forget about Me Too, Tahrir Square, and so on. Those in power, unfortunately, know it. I was told by somebody who looks into it, you know how the powers are getting ready to block the internet, phone connections, and so on and so on. We should think in these Trotskyite terms of uh, neutralizing or because the first thing the power will do is again to disconnect us and in today's society without digital connections and so on we are lost how to take over at that point nobody has to be killed and so on that's what I like in this idea people still sleep blah blah you just awaken <laughs> the power has gone you know sorry right well, thank you so much for all of your thoughts. Um, just in terms of where, how we're going to go on from here, there's going to be a book signing uh, that will take place in the library, and uh, you'll be told further information about how to take part in that if you'd like to. At 7.30, we'll uh, be welcoming Omarosa to the chamber. Uh, she was a former aide to President Trump. Uh, if members would like to attend, they're welcome to stay in the building. Queuing will take place through the Blue Room. And next week, we'll be welcoming guests including Lady Leisha, a former president of Kosovo, and one of Rodrigo Duterte's fiercest critics, as well as our weekly main debate, which will be looking at big data. But for now, uh, please wish Slavoj no, I'm well. I'm grateful to you for tolerating my eccentricity. And I'm give him a warm, warm round of applause.